So good to see you in church this morning. So good that you're here today. The you that are watching online, so glad that you're with us as well. During this COVID-19 season, we're doing our best to, to engage as a church family. So please do take a minute to fill out that Connect card. Let us know that you're here. Uh, whether you're here in the room or you're online, we're just glad that you're with us today. So let me ask you a quick question to kind of get the wheels turning as we get into message time this morning, okay? How many of you ever seen a movie or a TV show, one of those kind of things, where, where the opening scene is this dramatic kind of event, and you're going, wait a minute, there's some missing elements here. There, there's something, uh, how in the world did that happen? And then the next scene in the movie is three years earlier or something like that. You say, okay, I get it. So now I know that this whole movie is going to be unfolding the events that led up to the, to the big event that started the whole movie. That's just kind of, kind of how it works. In literary terms, it's called reverse chronology. Bottom line is, uh, it's, it's a very popular way of, of doing movies. And, you know, as a guy who likes mystery movies, I love to, to sit there and try to figure, who, figure out who done it and all that stuff. I like those kind of movies. But can I tell you as a pastor that I hate that dynamic? Because I've had far too many conversations. Pastor Andy will tell you, he's had far too many conversations with people who finally come to us in a moment of crisis, in a moment of tragedy, and they're telling us about the crisis and how there's no way they can get over this crisis. And in our minds, we're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, how did we get here? What are the events over the last three days, three weeks, three years uh, that have led up to this moment because there had to be more to the equation than this. It's the couple who's trying to rebuild after an affair, wondering how in the world did we end up here when in fact we know there had to be events that led up to that moment. Or, or the guy who's saying, I don't get it. My wife is demanding attention. My kids are acting out. And, and I've, I've, I've spent years building a career and building a big house for them and I just don't understand why they're acting the way they're acting. Or the teenager who says, you know, my parents divorced years ago and I've been the pawn in the divorce wars ever since. All I know is I am never getting married. So there's always something that kind of builds up to that major catastrophic event. And, and sometimes it's hard to understand what those things are. Are. For those of you that are new, we're in a series we're calling Insta Family, and yes, we're playing off of Instagram and other social media dynamics, and the reality that what you see in those things are the highlight reels. You see the vacation pictures, and you see the big smiles, and everybody's getting along beautifully, but in fact... Uh, life can be hard, and life uh, building a family is, is a journey. And so what we've been doing week by week through this series is we've been unpacking uh, the, the different stages in the life of a family. We've been talking about uh, family dynamics uh, kind of in each season. So we, we talked about single di- dating life, and we talked about marriage. Last week we talked about the parenting season when you kids and teenagers are trying to grow up, parents are trying to navigate those waters as they do life with you. Today I'm talking about a stage that really anybody can experience at any season in the life of the family. And I'm talking about that stage when tensions are high in the relationship and everybody's wondering, how in the world did we get here? And more importantly, how do we get past this point? The fact of the matter is there's absolutely nothing new about that. That dynamic's been true for families since the beginning of human history. You could go back in, in history and go back in the scriptures and find plenty of examples. But I found one 
from a really famous guy who is a, the quintessential expression of this kind of dynamic. And I thought we'd spend a little bit of time looking at his life. This guy's family was so dysfunctional, Jerry Springer would have turned him down. I mean, this guy is really bad shape, really messed up family. I'm talking about, may surprise you, King David and his family. Of course, David was known how? What's, what's the way everybody knows David? David, David was the kid who got the sling and the stones and, and killed Goliath, uh, the, the giant. And, and so we love that kind of story. It's a wonderful David and Goliath kind of dynamic that you see in modern movies and everywhere else. But the fact of the matter is, in his adult life, his family was messed up really bad. So before we get to that opening scene of our true story movie, let me kind of give you a little context of his family and how things went down. David was married by, uh, to several women along the way. His first wife, he ultimately ignored completely. His second wife uh, was a dysfunctional marriage to the max. His third marriage started in an affair uh, that he ultimately had her husband killed in order to cover up the pregnancy that came from that, and that child ultimately passed away. He's got a bunch of kids, half brothers and sisters now. David didn't have a family tree. He had family shrubbery, okay? This was a mess up kind of dynamic and that's when our reversed chronology story in our true story movie takes place. Second Samuel chapter 13, we won't go there in the interest of time, but let me just unpack it for you a little bit. David and all this dysfunctional stuff, he's got a bunch of kids now, half brothers, half sisters. Uh, one of them is Amnon and another is Tamar. They were half brother and sister, same dad, different moms. Tamar was drop-dead gorgeous. Amnon kind of got a crush on his half-sister. Let's all say yuck together. Yuck. That's it. So, in fact, it gets worse. Uh, he ultimately, one day, I want to be discreet about this, he forces himself on her. It gets worse. Dad, King David, does nothing about it. Well, the Bible says he got mad. But that's it. He didn't do anything about it. Maybe he was too busy at work. I mean, after all, he's the king. He's a busy guy, right? Maybe he didn't know what to do, but the bottom line is he didn't do anything. Now enter the story, uh, uh, Tamar's full brother, Absalom, and Absalom is mad about this. He is mad that his sister has been violated in this way, and so he says, if my dad isn't going to do anything about this, I will. So he throws a pig picking. Okay, they're Jews, it was a lamb kebab, but you get the picture. <laughs> kind of bring them all together, invites dad and all his siblings together to this big gathering. Dad doesn't come, the brothers and sisters do, and he pulls his, his bodyguards aside at one point and says, okay, when I give you the signal, I want you to kill Abnon. You'll be okay, it's my command, nothing's gonna happen to you, but I want you to take my brother out, and so he gives the signal, and sure enough, that's what happens. It leaves us with the question, how in the world did we get here? What could have happened in a family that would, that would culminate in the place where one brother is having another brother killed? To answer that, we got to go back. In this case, go back seven chapters to 2 
Samuel chapter 6. If you want to flip there in your Bible or go to the Bridge NC app, you can follow along the notes. We're going to look at 2 Samuel, uh, Samuel chapter 6 today and kind of unpack the journey that led us to that concluding scene that started our storyline. This goes back a ways. This goes back to before David's affair with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed. This goes back before his second dysfunctional marriage with Abigail. This goes all the way back to his first marriage in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Okay, you ready to get into it? I said all that just to set you up. Okay, you ready? So 2 Samuel 6, the young boy gets the sling, kills Goliath. What precedes that is King Saul makes a decree, says, okay, we're at war. This one champion is stopping us from succeeding. Anybody who can kill the giant will be tax exempt for life, and he gets to marry my daughter. That's the side story, the rest of the story that many people don't know. Sure enough, David steps up. Maybe you know the story. Read it if you, if you don't. He steps up. He takes out the, the giant. And, and of course, he gets tax exemption for life. And ultimately, he gets to marry the princess. I mean, it's fairy tale stuff. I mean, it's the kind of stuff you see in movies these days. Headlines in the newspaper the next day is National Heroes Sweeps king's daughter off her feet. I mean, it's just this beautiful, idyllic wedding. This amazing thing is going on until one day, King David is now king, married to Micah, and the Ark of the Covenant that had been stolen by their arch enemies, the Philistines, is now been restored and is coming back home. That represented the presence of God among them. And so they are excited that the presence of God is coming back to Jerusalem. And so they are in the streets cheering. They're throwing ticker tape as the ark is coming down the street. David gets in the midst of the celebration and he gets so excited. These royal robes of his are, are holding him back from, from uh, uh, celebrating the way he wants to. So he strips them off, leaves only his, his, uh, his inner garment and he dances in the streets along with everybody else and all the excitement and all the while his wife Micah is upstairs looking out the window humiliated and furious. She's so ashamed of David for what he's doing she doesn't know what to do. I guess she considered dancing in his boxer short is not dignified for a king. I don't know but she's upset. Got the scene? Let's pick up the story. 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 20. When David returned home, Micah, Michael, father of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Get yourself in the moment. David's been down there with the celebration. He's come home now. As he walks through the front door, Michael launches this frontal attack and she is dripping with condescending sarcasm. She's calling him names. She's comparing him to commoners. David fires back in verse 21. David says to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel I will celebrate before the Lord I will become even more undignified than this in other words you stuck up daughter of the former king God chose me not your brothers to be the next king and you think I'm undignified now sister you ain't seen nothing yet you can almost feel the sarcasm dripping from both of them as they attack each other the next verse describes the end result of the argument, verse 23. And Michael, daughter of Saul, 
had no children to the day of her death. That's the Bible's way of saying David sent her to the back bedrooms of the palace. She's never mentioned in the Bible again. For all practical purposes, their marriage ended that day. Which leaves us wondering, what role do you think their argument that day played, chapter 6, in the tragedy that unfolded later in chapter 13? What impact do you think the unresolved conflict between David and Michael had on brother ultimately attacking his own half-sister and other brother having him killed for it? I'll give you a hint. Loving families don't disintegrate in one day. I've asked Nikki and Steve Thigpen to come help me and illustrate what I'm trying to say to you before we get into the solution mode this morning. So can we welcome Steve and Nikki to the stage? Hey, guys. So imagine with me that it's their wedding day. Of course, that was a little while ago, but anyway, let's imagine it's their wedding day. And so they exchange rings with each other and everybody goes, oh, and that's so sweet. But, but what you don't realize is that they don't just exchange rings on wedding day. They also exchange emotional baggage that they brought with them into the marriage. And all the married people in the room said, amen. <laughs> we all had lives before our marriage and we all had emotional baggage that we brought with us. But it's okay because we love each other. We say, I know you've got some insecurities. I, I know you've got some issues from some previous rejections. I, I know you've got some anger issues because of extended family stuff. I, I know you've got some stuff, but I love you, and I'm glad to help you carry that. I'll help you work through these kinds of things. And that's, that's a wonderful part of the married life is you don't have to deal with this stuff alone. You've got somebody to partner with you and walk with you. Here's the problem. Every time they have a conflict that doesn't get resolved, they just add some more emotional baggage to the mix. And they say, well, it's okay. We love each other. We'll, we'll get through this. And so you go on until sometime later you have another one. And before you know it, the load's starting to get a little bit harder to carry. Here we are. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger because this stuff's getting, when it's unresolved, it just accumulates. You can swallow your conflict, but your stomach keeps score. I mean, it's still there, Right? Now, because men are so stupid, the wives wind up having to carry most of the stuff. <laughs> Thank you, ladies, for not saying amen loudly when I said that. So before you know it, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And before you know it, Nikki's saying, I just don't know how much more of this stuff I can carry. And here's what happens. One day she looks at him and says, I love you. And I'm willing to carry your stuff but this is just getting too heavy for me. I just can't carry it anymore. And before you know it, it's over. Did it end on that day? Or did it end back then? Thanks, guys. Can we appreciate Steve and Nikki for helping us out? You see, what happens is this accumulation effect uh, is very much a part of how we deal with life. So when it comes to David Michael, 
you ask how they got there. Well, let's go back and let's see if we can unpack it. For David, the fact that he and Michael failed to resolve that conflict led to a dysfunctional marriage with Abigail because he brought that baggage with him into his second marriage, which led to, the, to an affair with Bathsheba because his second marriage was so dysfunctional, which led to the murder of her husband to cover up the pregnancy, which led to sibling tensions and all kinds of horrible things, which led to the tragedy brother-on-brother brother murder, and it all stemmed back to unresolved conflict in their lives. Can I tell you that we can either learn from David and Michael's mistakes or we can learn from our own? I got one yes, a few head nods. Because we all have conflict. Somebody say amen. We all have to deal with the reality of conflict. The question is how do you move from conflict that creates chaos to a Christ-centered home and a Christ-centered relationship. Frankly, the principles I want to share with you in just the very few minutes that I have with you now uh, can be applied to a marital relationship. They can be applied to a parent-child relationship, to a sibling relationship, to adult children with their adult parents. It can be applied to a neighborhood, to a city, to a nation in turmoil. The principles are the same. The question is, what do we learn from David and Michael so that we don't make the same mistakes. I believe there's four possible life lessons from Scripture from their experience that will help us to avoid the mistakes that they made. So let me just unpack those quickly for you, and I'll let you go and get on with your day. Lesson number one simply is pray for wisdom. You can say pray for understanding if you want to, but pray for wisdom, pray for understanding. Understand, David's been at the center of this national celebration. It's one of the best days of his life in his reign as king. The ark is home and everybody's excited, but all Michael can see is that he made a fool of himself and more importantly, embarrassed her in the process. So she attacks him the minute he comes through the door. He gets defensive, eventually counterattacks. It escalates until they go their separate ways. Can I wonder out loud what would have happened or what might have happened if instead of launching her attack, Michael had prayed, Lord, help me to understand. Lord, would you calm my emotions and help me to, re to deal with this thing wisely? She might have realized that her father and her husband were two very different men. She might have realized that her father, the previous king, was proud of his appearance. The Bible says that Saul, the reason he became king is because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. And, and, and he was a strong arm, large, larger than life kind of leader. He, he would never have danced in the streets in his robes, much less in his boxer shorts. I mean, it just never would have happened. David, on the other hand, was a shepherd boy who became national hero. He was a populist leader that the people loved, and he identified with the people. And so it would be very common for David to be in the midst of the celebration with everybody as opposed to on the balcony watching them celebrate. And Micah knew the differences between her father and her husband. But instead of asking God for wisdom and understanding, she let her emotions define her response, which escalated the conflict. That's why James chapter 1, verse 5 is so important. 
in any conflict of in any relationship if you if any of you lack wisdom uh, he sh- you should ask god who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him lord help me to understand when conflict arises whether in your family or in our nation the first step in dealing with it before you say anything before you do anything is pray for wisdom Lord, help me to understand, calm my emotions, give me wisdom. The second thing then that we do in working toward resolution of conflict is we listen before we speak. So we haven't spoken or done anything yet. We've just been praying and talking to God about this thing, looking for wisdom and understanding and calm emotions. Now we're ready to engage the people that we're in conflict with. But before we say a word, we listen. James chapter one, verse 19. Everyone should be, say it with me, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become Anger, you may have heard it said that if you are quick to listen and slow to speak, you're very much more likely to be slow to become angry. The natural inclination, though, is for us to view conflict, whether it's personal or national, to view our side, our perspective deeply and view the other person or the other side's perspective superficially to view our side deeply, to view their side superficially. Do I need to say that again? When we find ourselves in conflict, it is very common to view our side superficially or deeply, but view their side superficially. And so it becomes incredibly important before we say or do anything that we stop and listen. Help me to understand a little bit more about what's going on in you. Help me to understand a little bit more about what led to this conflict before I even respond, before I even tell you my side of the equation. Hear me, guys. Conflict is in itself is not bad. Conflict is, in fact, inevitable. You take an imperfect person and put them in relationship with another imperfect person, what do you get? We talked about this last week. You don't get perfection. You get double imperfection. You're you're two imperfect people trying to be in relationship, two imperfect groups trying to be in relationship. That's what happens. And so we have to stop and ask ourselves, what's the end game? What's the goal here? What are we trying to accomplish here? Because while conflict is inevitable, competition in relationships is deadly. And what happens so often in our conflicts, again, whatever relationship we're talking about, is instead of resolving the issues, reconciling the relationship, we end up escalating the war. Michael and David got confused about this competition thing. She laid into him as soon as he walked through the door. He counterattacked with sarcasm. They both treated the conflict as a competition to see who would win, and they both lost. Hear me, guys, there's lots of ways to win an argument. But you've got to stop and ask yourself the question, what have I got when I'm done? What's left after I won? Because the goal is not to be a lonely winner. The goal is to be in relationship. Does that make sense? Say it with me. It's on the screens. Here we go. The goal isn't to be a lonely winner. Come on. The goal isn't to be a lonely winner. The goal is to resolve the conflict and find intimacy on the other side of it. Let's be honest, guys. When we get into an argument, 
The other person says something that stirs something and hits something and fires something up. We don't respond calmly. I mean, when was the last time you were in conflict with somebody and they let you have it? I mean, they just vented, they cussed you out. And when they finally vented it on out, you went, oh man, I needed that. Oh, thank you. I haven't been cussed out that good in so long. Boy, can you do that for me every now and then? It just kind of clears the air for me. That's not what we do. What we do, we go back at them. Why? Because it becomes a competition. Who gets to win this time? But the goal is not to win, particularly if you lose the relationship in the process. The goal is to reconcile the relationship and then from that reconciled place resolve the issues that separate you. But for that to happen, before you say or do anything, you've got to pray for wisdom, for understanding, for, for calming of the emotions. You've got to do a whole lot more listening than talking in order to get there. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both spiritual and brilliant. What? That's, that's not what it says? Read it with me, come on. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both Shameful and foolish. So pray for wisdom. Listen before you speak. And then when you do speak, speak wisely. Speak wisely. As you ponder this story, this scenario, this true life, true story movie that we're talking about between David and Michael and his family, um, any idea what might have happened if they had prayed for wisdom and understanding and calm? and then listened before they spoke? I mean, if they had, it, it, the conversation might have gone very differently. It may well have started with, with, with Michael saying when David walked through the door, congratulations, honey, I know this is a great day for you. Man alive, the ark is back in the city. This is the pinnacle of your role as king. I am so proud of you and what you've accomplished. Oh, just kind of just hug you and celebrate with you. And then in the midst of all of that, they talked about what his accomplishment and how he felt about all of that. Michael might have said something like, you know, I'm really proud of you, uh, but there is one thing bothering me that, uh, th- that I'd love to talk through. You know, when you strip down to your boxer shorts, I saw the way those slave girls looked at you, and it really left me feeling insecure, um, embarrassed. Then if David had prayed and, and listened before responding, he might have said, you know what, I... I'm sorry, I, you know, I was having such a blast before the Lord and, I, you know, I was just focused on God and so thankful that he had restored the ark to us. I, I didn't mean to embarrass you. Honey, and you, you don't have to, anything to worry about those slave girls. I only have eyes for you, dear. Instead of going to separate bedrooms for the rest of their lives, they might well have gone back to the same one that night. And it might be a very different outcome. How might the conversation have gone differently? Proverbs 16, 32. From a wise mind comes wise speech. The words of the wise are persuasive. Kim and I have been married almost 45 years. 
and we've certainly had our share of conflict through the years, and we haven't always handled it perfectly by any sense of the imagination, but we did learn something very early on in our marriage that has proved to serve us very, very well, uh, and that was at a marriage conference we went to, and they said, when you do get in an argument, fight slow. So we've developed a habit of what we call fighting in slow motion. If you were to walk into our house and we were in the middle of an argument, you might not even know there was an argument going on. You might think we were ignoring each other. But what, in fact, we may well be happening is she just said something, and I'm, and I'm listening, and I'm thinking, and I'm pondering, and I'm praying, okay, God, help me to understand where Kim's coming from with this thing. Or maybe I just said something, and Kim's praying, Lord, help me to understand what Jim's uh, thinking or, 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 or his perspective and, and why he doesn't understand what I'm trying to say. And, you know, help me to think through this and respond wisely rather than attacking. And we've learned to slow it way down by praying for wisdom and understanding, by listening first before we speak, and then when we do speak, speaking with understanding. I'm not going to pretend we always get it right, but when we get it right, we resolve the issues. The key to all of this, the reason we're about to celebrate our 40th, 45th wedding anniversary is number four, and I'll close. Love one another. Love each other. That's the key. Again, whether it's a marital relationship, a parent-child, a national relationship, racial tensions, whatever it is, love is the key to this whole thing. And I'll tell you why. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear because fear has nothing to do with punishment. Now, we love to quote the middle phrase from that verse. It's one of those popular things that you see all the time. You see it in movies. All of the perfect love drives out all fear. Got it. Okay. But do you understand why it does? It's the last phrase in that verse. Because fear has nothing to do with punishment. In other words, Pastor Jim paraphrased, when I know that you love me, I trust you. When I know that you love me consistently and unconditionally and you have my best interest at heart, I trust you not to use what I say or fail to say against me. And I'm not afraid to be honest with you because of it. That's when we can sit at the table and have honest dialogue. That's when we can sit down and say, let's put it on the table. I may not say this right. Please forgive me if I come out blunt or if I'm confusing to you. But I know you love me. I love you. We want nothing more than to be reconciled, to find peace and intimacy. So let's put it all on the table and have honest dialogue. Without love, that simply isn't possible. Simply isn't. Jesus Christ is the source of that love. I love what our own Robin Casey put on social media this week. Many of you know Robin. She and David have been part of the church family for many years. They're kids, grown young adults, amazing kids, wonderful guys. Biracial family that's, that's dealt with a lot of the issues in their own homes that we deal with on a national level with Christ at the center of it all. I got her permission to share a quote from her post. She said, after having hard 
honest dialogues at the table as a family. We came to the conclusion that we overcome hate with love by having real conversations, seeking first to understand rather than be understood because that's when true healing begins. I got to close. I hope you're thinking about these things in the context of any and all conflicts that you may be dealing with. But it may be that some of you are sitting here right now or you're on your living room couch listening to me right now and you're thinking, uh, you know, I started out with a dream of where our story was going to end and that's not where we are at all. But I don't see any way back. I don't see any way to overcome what we've dealt with. Tensions are so high, again, in the family, in the community, in the nation. Tensions are so high, I don't see any way that we're ever going to get past this. Well, David did. David did. With all the dysfunction of his family and all the mistakes that he made, he understood the answer, ultimately, was to come back to the center. And so he prays in Psalm 51, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Make my spirit right again. Do not send me away from you or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Give me back the joy of your salvation. David understood that at the end of the day, God has to be at the center. If you want to move from chaos to Christ, you've got to put God at the center. We serve a God of resurrections, of new beginnings, of fresh starts. Acts chapter 13, verse 36 is one of my personal favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's become one of my life verses, if you will. It says, for when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he, he fell asleep and he was buried with his fathers. And I've read that so many times and I've thought to myself through the years, it don't get no better than that. Jim served God's purpose in his generation, and then he went to heaven. It don't get no better than that. Put your name in there. Jason served God's purpose in his generation, and then he went to heaven. Nicole served God's purpose in her generation, and then she went to heaven. It don't get no better than that. And no matter what's happened in your life up to this point, it's still available to you because it was available to David because Jesus Christ gave his life for us, paid the price for all of our failures and all of our sins, and he can bring healing into your life, into your relationships, into our nation. It's a little bit like buttoning your shirt, if I can simplify it. If you get the top button right, all the rest of the buttons just work out. You get the top one wrong, you end up at the end going, how in the world did I get here? Let's get the top button right. Let's put Christ at the center of it all and watch these conflicts that separate us just go away, dissolve the healing of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm praying for. Would you join me in that prayer? Online, in the room, let's pray. Father, thank you for being the kind of God who gives us second chances. Thank you for being the kind of God who gives us fresh starts, resurrections where needed. I pray for healing in every relationship that's represented 
in this group today. And I know people watching online all over the world, thank you for being God to all of us and letting fresh starts be available to all of us. I pray right now that you would help each one of us to pray this simple prayer together. Come on, guys, pray it with me. Silently, out loud, I don't care. At home, right here in the room, let's just pray together. Jesus, would you be the center? Would you be the top button? When I find myself in conflict with others, would you remind me to pray for wisdom and understanding? Cool emotions. Would you give me the wisdom to listen more than I speak. And when I do speak, speak with the understanding that I've gained from actually paying attention to what the other is saying. And let love be at the center of it all. Let you be our reservoir of love that we draw on. In Jesus' name. Father, you know who's praying. You know every conflict that there uh, that's represented here maybe the conflict has been with you not sure that you're there or that you care I pray that you resolve every conflict even as we look to you now in Jesus name and all God's people said together amen